0: The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. We'll be reading through verse 46 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter, the word of the Lord. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. But two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. Thou will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood. And put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing... Or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one Paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up Eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times, and at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea, and he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you, and in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. We'll be reading to verse 18 this evening word of our God. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him So that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. Here end is the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 18 because this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Our God reigns That is not simply a declaration of fact, that is a declaration of good news. The prophet Isaiah puts it, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns.'" As long as we realize that God is for us, that is really good news. But it is a proclamation that also raises an important question. Not simply do I know that God is for me, but am I for God? Perhaps we can ask that question in a slightly different and better way. Are we all in on seeking our praise from the Lord or are we divided in our loyalties, not wanting to put all of our eggs into one basket? To return in scripture to the dramatic confrontation between Yahweh and Baal in tonight's passage, we are naturally tempted to put ourselves in the shoes of Elijah, that fearless man of God who was faithful to the Lord and to his calling in spite of great opposition. Perhaps by God's grace, that is precisely the person in this story you can most identify with. Thankfully, by God's grace, uh, we don't need to identify with Ahab or with the prophets of Baal. But I want to remind you that there's another group of people in this story. In fact, it's the vast majority of the people in the story. It's the Israelites who've been called out to this contest. What about them See, it turns out that the vast majority of people in Israel are neither fully devoted to Baal nor fully devoted to Yahweh. They're engaged in a bit of syncretistic religion. They take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They mix it together in a stew, probably a stew that was quite socially respectable in their communities. And they went on with their lives. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, and it should, that, in fact, is the American way. Americans very much think that you can kind of design your own religion. Actually, this is spread throughout the Western world today. You take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever happens to please your fancy, and just mix it together. And one of the things that the crowd in that day didn't do, and frankly is looked down upon in our day, They were not fanatics, right? They were respectable in their religion, perhaps, even those who nodded in Yahweh's direction, but they didn't do anything that would put them out of the norms of their community so that people would go, that person's just a little bit too carried away with his religion. As I say, if that sounds familiar to you, it is because this is the American way. And yet Jesus says... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross daily and follow me. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, it turns out that American culture has a way of domesticating these claims of Jesus. At least in common practice. So we easily convince ourselves that instead of bringing every aspect of our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that as long as we bring some of it to Jesus, we give him a couple hours of religion every week, then Jesus must be pleased with us. We are therefore wise to recall the words of our Lord to the church in Laodicea. There Jesus says, I know your works, that you were neither cold, nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or, as we heard this morning, you do not need to be actively hostile to Jesus to be in the wrong. Indifference to Jesus is idolatry, and such idolatry brings terrible consequences. This evening's sermon passage, therefore, is a bold challenge to the American church to stop limping between two opinions and to commit ourselves body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to look at tonight's passage under four main headings. First, blessed are the pure in heart. We begin with a beatitude. Second, Sincerity is not enough. Third, God of fire, God of judgment. And fourth, his mercy is more. Let me give those to you again. First, blessed are the pure in heart. Second, sincerity is not enough. Third, God of fire, God of judgment. And fourth, his mercy is more. We begin with the famous beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's vital for us to grasp what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying blessed are the pure in heart because they will be treated as exceptional saints in the age to come. See, the pure in heart, according to Jesus, make up the entire category of those who see God in blessedness in the age to come. That means it's vital for us to understand what Jesus means by the pure in heart, and it's vital for us to make sure that we fit into this category. So what does it mean? Well, put simply, to be pure in heart is to have undivided loyalties. It's actually how it functions in the New Testament. Uh, How do we get at that, though? I think, concretely, it's easier to see what divided loyalties look like. Uh, it means that you place your hope for happiness on Christ and something else. Christ and getting into a really good school. Uh, Christ and on this relationship. Christ and money. You're, you're diversifying. Don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. But being pure heart says the kingdom of God alone, Christ alone. Now, I do want to be careful not to to mislead you on this. When we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, when we put him first, that, of course, does not mean we don't love other people and other things. God, after all, requires us. When we say, you're going to love God, he says, well, love your brother. right? And, And so the issue about pursuing purity in heart is not about taking everything else and treating it badly. You don't have to condemn all these other things that actually might be temptations to you. Because most of the temptations we face as Christians are actually not for bad things. You know, if you're tempted to things like pornography and so on, yeah, cut it out of your life. But the actual problem that most of us struggle with is not putting something bad in the place of God. It's putting something that is really good in the wrong place. But it ought to be subordinate to our relationship with Jesus Christ. It ought to be in support. It ought to be a blessing we receive from God. And we've decided that that's going to be either the most important thing or the thing that we cannot live without. So how do we go about pursuing this purity with God? I think the issue is we just simply need to meditate upon Christ himself. Tonight we see that the crowds were in fact quite divided. Uh, The crowds assembled on Mount Carmel with... Uh, A desire to see a spectacle. You know, the the king's going to be there. Elijah's going to be there. There's going to be 450 prophets of Baal. And we're going to see this great contest between the two prophets or sets of prophets. And they came out to see a show. Boy, were they going to be disappointed. Elijah does not begin by addressing King Ahab. Elijah does not begin by addressing the prophets of Baal. Instead of addressing the king of the prophets of Baal, Elijah begins by addressing the people. Look at verse 21 with me. And Elijah came near to all the people of him and said, "How long will you, right, Yes, you go on limping between two opinions. If the Lord is God, worship Him. If Baal is God, worship Him." See, what Elijah is making clear here tonight is that the contest is not simply between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Actually, the conflict is running through every single Israelite heart. He's saying, you guys are wishy-washy. You're not devoted to the Lord the way the Lord is devoted to his people. And you need to be. You need to become pure of heart. Uh, D.A. Carson rightly describes limping between two opinions as spiritual adultery. We need to see it in that dark and ugly sense. Now, if you just run into two random people in the street and you don't have any particular distinction between them, that's fine. You could be neutral in that sense. But if you take vows before God and you marry a particular woman or a particular man and you commit your life to them, well, you know, if a couple years later you're going, well, you know, I'm treating this woman that's my wife and this other woman over here that just came and worked the same way. You know, I flirt with them both. I spend time with them both. I try to make them both happy. You can't claim neutrality. That's adultery. It's ugly and it's wrong. Well, the living God had covenanted himself with Israel. Actually, that's one of the images we see in the Old Testament of God marrying Israel as a bride. And of course, It's an image that's picked up again in the New Testament where Christ takes the church as his bride. The Lord had entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. He had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Lord had given them his word. He had given them prophets and priests. He had given them his own sacred presence in the tabernacle and then the temple. And they had chosen to commit adultery with the Baals. It's ugly. And it deserves God's judgment. What seems like a distance neutrality by which we weigh all options is already horrible idolatry. You know, a a husband can't be neutral toward his wife. The people of God can not, not be neutral toward our Lord. Anything other than commitment to the Lord our God is a type of spiritual adultery. Who was on the Lord's side as Elijah stepped out and called them to account? Who was on the Lord's side who would step forward when push comes to shove and unequivocally declare his or her full devotion to the God of Israel? Sadly, the people are completely silent. They do not answer him a word. Well, here's the pointed question. What would you have done? The only way we can answer that question is not to imagine that we'd always be heroic in the past. The only way we can answer that question is to ask, how am I living for Jesus Christ right now? Am I conspicuous in my faithfulness and devotion? I don't mean putting on a show for other people. I'm talking about your own heart. Or do you just kind of comfortably go through life and nod a bit in Jesus' direction? See, we are naturally tempted to distribute where we place our ultimate hopes in an effort to avoid being completely disappointed. Yet as Jesus will later tell us, no man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Limping between two opinions or being torn between different loyalties is the very opposite of being pure in heart. What this means is that the silent crowds on Mount Carmel were outside of God's saving purposes. Right? This is not... A a church, Israel is a church in the Old Testament, is not a church full of saved people who just need to be a little bit more energetic. These people do not know the God of Israel as their very own savior. Even though they had been born with all the privileges of being in the covenant. Uh, It is important to add that loving the Lord our God with all our heart As I've already said tonight, does not mean we don't love anything else, but it does mean we have to put everything else in the right perspective. It has to fit within our ultimate devotion to God himself. Part of the way that we move toward that is simply to focus on the glory of God, the beauty of who he is, the wonder of who he is. Part of the way we do that is by being grateful. Uh, As you keep giving prayers of gratitude and songs of gratitude back to God in worship, that's going to orient you toward putting him and keeping him first in your life. As we treasure Christ more and more in our thinking and our lives, the Lord will graciously make us more like him and he will bless us for the transforming grace that he himself is giving us. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In response to the shameful silence of the crowds, Elijah lays out the terms of the contest that he is proposing. Verses 22 through 24. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, And let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Uh, You're going to notice that this is a lot more of what the people had in mind. Um, You know, Elijah stopped doing that thing that preachers do, meddling. And he's moved on to get on with the show. That's what they came to see. They're still not committed. So all the people answered, it is well-spoken. The crowd must have noticed, of course, how lopsided the contest was. Uh, There were, after all, 450 prophets of all. They are well-fed. They are on the royal payroll. They are trained, polished prophets, admittedly of a false god. Uh, you might think in our own day, if you saw a bunch of people that were, um, I'm not saying these people are all unbelievers, but people that had PhDs and were professors at Yale and Harvard and so on, and then, and then somebody that comes off a farm, as it were, dressed in dirty clothes, having done his work, that's Elijah by comparison. And furthermore, Elijah lets them go first. They get to pick the bull. They get first shot at it. They can win this thing before Elijah even gets started. So the prophets of Baal take their bowl that was given to them. They prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Slow down on that a bit. From morning, probably nine o'clock, until noon. Three hours. They're dancing around this bowl, chanting, Oh, Baal, hear us. You know what these guys are? They're serious. Actually, they're sincere. That's an important thing to realize. They actually are devoted to Baal. They were utterly sincere, but sincerity is not enough. Now, this is something that Americans in general need to hear, but we need to hear it too, because we live in this culture. In the United States, we are so individualistic that we tend to think of religion in um, very subjective terms. Whatever happens to work for you. And so we tend to put a very, very high premium on sincerity. Please note that the prophets of Baal are deadly serious and completely sincere but they are sincerely wrong. Uh, I should say, um, sometimes in discussions, we even hear this really, really strange saying, true for you. Well, if that's true for you, right, that's good. But of course, truth is not person relative. A lie does not become the truth because I happen to believe it. Now, perhaps it's helpful to remind ourselves that nobody innocently, believes in Baal. There's a difference between believing sincerely in a false god and believing innocently in a false god. After all, the Lord is revealing himself through creation to everybody. Not only is he making it possible for people to know them, when you read Romans 1, Paul makes clear that revelation gets through. Everybody has a direct access to the revelation of God and because they hate God, the God who lives, they suppress that truth and exchange it for a lie. Maybe a useful thing, you don't necessarily need to say it out loud, but to tuck in the back of your head, when you talk to someone or talk about someone who is a sincere Jehovah Witness, a sincere Mormon, a sincere Muslim, a sincere Hindu and so on. They may be entirely sincere. First, they're sincerely wrong, and second, their sincerity does not make them innocent. Because before they embrace the lie, they suppress the truth that God is revealing to him. The reason why they do this is they do not want to bow the knee to God and to submit to living in accordance with his will. That's a useful truth for us to keep in mind because our culture is so much against that idea. Well, Elijah does not suggest that the prophets of Baal engage in some sort of gentle dialogue with the prophets of Yahweh so we can come to a better mutual understanding. After all, we're all sincere. What, What Elijah says is, you're wrong. You're horribly wrong. You're wrong in accordance with God's law in a way that involves capital punishment. You ought to be put to death for this. And so Elijah, a couple hours into their mindless chanting, begins to openly mock them. You know, cry aloud. You're not making enough noise. He can't hear you. He might be sleeping. You need to wake him up. Um, I love the fact that Elijah says, you know, he might be in the outhouse, you know, relieving himself. And um, the prophets of Baal, they just press on even more. I do want to encourage you to be careful with using the serrated edge of sarcasm as a tool to teach people about God or in debates. Um, this passage is making clear there are, in fact, times when that might be appropriate, but it's going to be very, very rarely appropriate for any of us. For one thing, none of us are prophets. Uh, but even apart from that, we should realize that uh, we're very likely to cut ourselves with the serrated edge or Somebody who's listening on is going to be offended and turned away because they don't like our sarcasm. And we're not actually advancing the cause of Christ. Nevertheless, God's word makes clear that those who mock the Lord deserve to be mocked. That's not complicated. Those who mock the Lord deserve to be mocked. Uh, I should add our, our own natural, it's my natural inclination too, I am you know, very much a product of the Western world and North America, our natural inclination to move over toward polite dialogue may actually be part of the problem in this sense. Once we move to polite dialogue, we are creating or we can be creating the impression that the differences between us aren't that big a deal and all we really need to do is come to a better Mutual understanding. Uh, furthermore, in this particular case, it was important for the sake of the crowds that Elijah make clear just how utterly absurd it was to worship Baal. Right? Mocking the prophets of Baal may very well, I mean, Elijah doesn't know how it's going to turn out here in terms of the crowds, might very well keep thousands of people from worshiping Baal in the future, right? So there's a purpose. By the way, if you ever get into apologetics and you listen to great debates, and someone like Greg Bonson is just a brilliant, brilliant apologist, um, remember he's debating someone else up on stage. He's not having a personal conversation with somebody um, over dinner. And, And so the way that he's talking to someone in front of a thousand college students is in fact different than the way we ought to normally be talking to our neighbors. So real life is complicated. We should all acknowledge that. And it calls us to seek the wisdom that comes from above rather than living according to somebody else's to-do list. You know, here's what you do with sarcasm, never use it, use it a lot, whatever. We, we can't just fit things into that mold. But I do want to encourage you to think at least twice before attempting to use sarcasm to advance the truth. It's a very dangerous weapon. Uh, What's remarkable is how Elijah's mocking seems to stir up the prophets of Baal to demonstrate their devotion with even greater fervor. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. They were sincere. They were sincerely wrong. In our day, we need to keep reminding ourselves of this basic truth. Sincerity is not enough. Then Elijah said to all the people, come nearer to me. Right now it's my turn. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Um, It's a sign of the times that Elijah has to rebuild the altar of the Lord, right? It it wasn't in regular use here. But I want you to pay attention to how he rebuilds the the altar. The actions in the language are calculated to evoke the glorious history that Israel enjoyed as the Lord's people. You know, the northern tribes of Israel right now are divided from the south. They're divided from Judah. Actually, the great sin, you remember, of Jeroboam that continues on is that the people are not going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple they're, they're worshiping when even when they're worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping him in the wrong way by worshiping him in Samaria. But Elijah rebuilds the altar with twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, Jacob, who has been renamed Israel after he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. The mass of the people of Israel have rejected their heritage, and Elijah's calling them to embrace it again. And he's not simply saying, be the best northern tribes you can be. He says, God's called you to be Israel, right? My chosen people. Uh, Then with a bit of dramatic flair, Elijah has them dig a trench around the altar, and then he has them repeatedly douse the ox, the altar, the trench, the whole thing with water three times. The water overflows the trench. He's trying to make clear there's no tricks here. Everything is stacked against him. But then, in stark contrast to the raving of the prophets of Baal, Elijah, this great man of God, offers up a simple and dignified prayer O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Jesus would later point out, the pagans imagine that they will be heard for their vain repetitions. Six hours of vain repetitions of the prophets of Baal chanting, O Baal, hear us. But your father in heaven is always eager to hear the prayers of his children. I love the way that John Woodhouse expounds on this prayer. He writes, notice six things in Elijah's prayer. Don't worry, they're all very short. First, He addressed Yahweh as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. This is a prayer in faith to the God who has called this people to be his people. Second, Elijah uses Israel rather than Jacob. And this makes the point already noted by the narrator in verse 31. Yahweh is the God of Israel in the full sense of the 12 tribes descended from Jacob to acknowledge that this god is your god must involve recognizing all of his people as your people and not cutting yourself off from Jerusalem which is the foundational sin of Jeroboam and the tribes of the north third Elijah asked Yahweh to make three things known that you are God in Israel that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Fourth, Elijah called on the Lord to answer. Um, There had been no answer, right? When when the prophets called out to Baal, that's the whole point of this contest. And, And Elijah simply says, Lord, Baal can't hear, he doesn't exist. You do hear from heaven. Would you answer my prayer? Fifth, the Lord's answer will make known to the people... Not only who is God in Israel, but who is God? It's actually both parts of that in this prayer. God isn't simply the God of Israel. Yahweh is the God of all the earth. And finally, Elijah asks that the people would then know that you have turned their hearts back. This simple yet profound prayer is offered, and then the Lord answers with fire. I mean, can you imagine being there? I mean, because, you know, when this contest got going, the crowd was pretty excited. Have uh, ever gone to like a fair or something that dragged on for a long time? You probably have. Or uh, a Little League baseball game that couldn't end because nobody could actually catch the ball, right? And it's just going on and on. You're going, please, would this thing end. There's six hours of the crowd listening to the prophets of Baal chant, "O Baal, hear us. I, I think they were pretty tired of it. But with just that little simple prayer from Elijah, fire falls from heaven. It must have completely overwhelmed them. Verse 39, 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Uh, By the way, there's a nice little detail in here. Um, Some of you, being strong Deuteronomists, might have been struggling with the fact that Elijah's rebuilding an altar where there shouldn't be an altar. Shouldn't all these people be going down to Jerusalem to worship? Well, God took care of that. He not only consumed the offering, he consumed the stones. There is no longer an altar there when God is done. Needless to say, after enduring six hours of mindless chanting from the prophets of Baal, the vast crowd is in awe over what they have just heard and seen. So they fall on their faces and they cry, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It seems like they're no longer limping between two opinions. Sadly, as we're going to discover in the coming weeks, if we uh, have the opportunity in God's will, um, this is actually just an emotional reaction. People sometimes do that. You know, People come forward at evangelistic conferences, and they don't actually give their lives to Christ in spite of seeing this profound and dramatic miracle, the vast majority of the people in the northern tribes continue to not bow the knee to the Lord and continue to go their own way. Well, that's a story for another day. For now, the people are caught up in the drama of the moment. And so Elijah responds, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. Now, oddly, as I was preparing this sermon, I read, a, well, I read a whole bunch of commentaries, but a couple of evangelical commentaries, the commentators lamented the fact that Elijah had these prophets put to death. I think that not only misses the thrust of much of the Old Testament, but actually misses an important point in this passage, that God is the God of fire and the God of judgment just have to remind yourself, Elijah is not traveling to Egypt looking for false prophets. He's not traveling to Tyre looking for false prophets. This is Israel. the law of God, laid down clearly in the Pentateuch, says, "If you prophesy in the name of a foreign God, you must, but you may, you must be put to death. God is the God of fire. God is the God of judgment." That's not surprising. What's really surprising is what the Lord does next. Although the people do not truly turn and embrace him, the Lord in his mercy sends rain. Right, it's been three and a half years of, fam- of uh, drought and famine, but now the Lord sends rain. Verse 41. I think this is surprising too. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, there is, for there is a sound of rushing, the rushing of rain. To um, so the little bit that I could put myself in Elijah's shoes, I think I would have gone to Ahab and said, who's the troubler in Israel now? Right? <laughs> I'm not as sanctified as he was. Elijah actually is quite kind and gentle to him. He lets Ahab know that rain is coming. There's, there's not a cloud in the sky. Right? Not a cloud at all. We're going to see that in a moment. Not a cloud in the sky. And he says, you got to get going or your chariot is going to be bogged down in the rain. And then he'll send a, a servant who was there with them with that same message a little bit later so that Ahab can travel to Jezreel. Verses 42 through 46. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel And he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black and the clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Here's a question. How many times would you pray if you were praying for rain in the middle of a drought? I think if you're desperate enough, you keep praying, but sporadically, right? You don't just keep praying ceaselessly. You, You keep being reminded of the drought, you pray. Here's a slightly different question. How many times do you pray? How persistent are you in prayer? if you know that God has promised to send the rain. That's where Elijah's at. All the way back when Elijah meets him with the widow at Zarephath and sends him back to Ahab, he says, go back, because I am going to send rain. And what we see is Elijah, this great man of God, he's going to pray until it rains. He's down on his face, there's no evidence, this guy doesn't have a single cloud in it. He's praying persistently, Because he knows he's praying in the will of God. Well, it turns out that applies to us, too. You know, this week, there are a lot of things you're going to be praying for, but you don't know what God wants to have happen. You pray for jobs, relationships, healing, good health, all kinds of things, right? For yourself, for other people. And and you should. God calls you to pray to bring your, your desires, your hopes and dreams before him. Pour them out before your Father in heaven. You know there are things you pray for that you know are in God's will, like praying for your own sanctification or the sanctification of your brothers and sisters in this church. Or or when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know that's in God's will. That ought to motivate us to be persistent in those sorts of prayers. That we ought to approach prayer with a, a diligent zeal, not as a last resort but is part, if I may put it this way, of the ordinary way in which God brings his will and his purposes to pass in our lives. In this case, God's will was to demonstrate his astonishing mercy by sending rain upon the very people who had abandoned him. Tonight we have seen two remarkable pairs of truths. First, first, While we are called to have undivided loyalty, mere sincerity, or undivided loyalty to the wrong thing, is not enough. Second, the true and living God is the God who sends fire and the God who sends judgment. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nevertheless, tonight's passage does not end on a note of fire and judgment. Tonight's passage in its climax is about streams of mercy that flow from our God. And if the Lord's mercy is so great for his covenant people, when they do not fully turn to embrace him, how much greater is his mercy toward us who are found this evening in Jesus Christ? As Matt Boswell so beautifully puts it, What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise God. Amen.